everybody and welcome to Care Talk. My name is Laura Packard and I'm the Executive Director of Healthcare Voter. And not only do I run Healthcare Voter, but I've also been a patient and I've gone through the American medical system firsthand. Uh, and today we have experts here to answer your questions about health care and health insurance. So please keep texting and calling in your questions and we will answer them on a future show. Our first question is from Susan, who wants to know, please explain when and why Medicare Advantage plans are not in some, uh, somebody's best interest. They advertise the pluses, but don't explain the total differences between Medicare Advantage and other plans, such as copays and deductibles and other things, especially with extended illnesses. So Diane from Just Care, can you explain a little more about uh, the difference between traditional Medicare and Medicare Advantage? Yes, I would love to. So um, you are so right, Susan. It's people really don't understand the difference, and they are meaningful differences. They are critical differences. The best insurance that anybody could have is insurance that guarantees them access to the care they need when they need it at a price they can afford. And that's actually what traditional Medicare does, so long as you have supplemental coverage to fill gaps. And that tends to cost around. 200 bucks a month, which for a lot of people is expensive, but it can be a really good investment because with traditional Medicare, you have the freedom to choose your doctors and hospitals and to get the care you and your doctor believe you need that's medically necessary. And then um, when you get care, virtually all your costs are covered. You're not forced to choose between your health care and your rent or some other necessity because your out-of-pocket costs are high. But in stark contrast, Medicare Advantage plans are a big gamble, and really for three key reasons. The first is that even though each Medicare Advantage plan is different and requires you to follow different rules in order to get your coverage, you don't have a way of knowing in advance which ones are going to cover the care you want and need from the doctors and hospitals you want to use. So it gets really tricky to pick a plan that will meet your needs if you develop a costly condition. Second, um, you might not have coverage from the Medicare Advantage plan you choose that gets you to the hospitals and doctors you want to use, again, because you don't know in advance which doctors and hospitals you're going to need um, if you get really sick. And finally, um, when you have a Medicare Advantage plan, you're likely going to have to go through a lot of hoops to get costly and complex care, including prior authorizations and referrals. And then on top of that, you're going to have out-of-pocket costs that can be as high in a given year as $7,550. Um, a lot of plans average around 5000 bucks out-of-pocket, but that's still a lot of money. And so a lot of people in Medicare Advantage face barriers to care that actually keep them from getting needed care. Um, when if you're in traditional Medicare and you have supplemental coverage, then you have easy access to the care you need from the doctors and hospitals you want to use. So those are the big differences. Thanks. So it sounds like Medicare Advantage plans may be cheaper uh, from the outset, but if you look at, uh, if you ever have something expensive happen to you, it could wind up being a lot more affordable to be in traditional Medicare. 
Exactly right. And of course, insurance is all about the if you ever. I mean, if we didn't ever, then we wouldn't buy insurance. So if you really want to buy insurance, you want the insurance that's going to meet your needs when and if, God forbid, something. Thanks. Our next question is a text from our viewer, Gina. Uh, How is health insurance affordable? I didn't have it last year because I couldn't afford it. And I got it this year, but I'm probably going to have to cancel. I only made $50,000 last year and they're charging me $425 a month. How do I pay my other bills? Just to live on Long Island, it's impossible. Uh, Alika, do you have some thoughts for Gina? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that the reality is that even though laws like the American Rescue Plan have made coverage a lot more affordable for many people, it, ACA coverage is still not affordable for many, particularly if you live in a high cost of living area like Long Island. Um, I do want to call out just based on um, this viewer's question that how much financial assistance you're given uh, on the ACA actually depends on the amount of money that you're going to make in the year in which. So it's really important if you're going to be making um, a lower uh, income in this upcoming year that you go and update that on your application because they, they actually don't want the, your income from last year. They want it from the year uh, ahead. So that's one thing I'll call out. Um, the second thing I'll, I'll mention is that, um, again, under the American Rescue Plan, um, which uh, expanded subsidies uh, for many people, um, no one is supposed to pay more than around um, 8.5% of income for, again, always fun the way they calculate this, for the second cheapest silver plan. Um, I'll note that the premium that you're mentioning is a little bit more than 8.5% of your income. And that means there are likely plans out there that are a little bit more affordable. Um, you know, it's not open enrollment right now. Um, always good to check if you might qualify for a life event um, that would allow you to change plans mid-year. You can definitely call um, the New York State of Health uh, who can help you assess that. Um, but when you, the, the real takeaway here is every year, it's really important to look at every plan available to you. Um, make sure you're, you're finding something that is uh, still going to cover what you need, but um, making sure that you're assessing sort of whether the plan uh, and price changes every year might let you find something a little bit more affordable. Um, so I think that's the, that's the main takeaway. Thanks, Alika. Our next question is from Carolyn, uh, who retired from federal civil service. Uh, They took their health insurance with them. uh, But when would Carolyn sign up for Medicare or is it automatic? Uh, Carolyn will keep their health insurance uh, and pay for part D, part B. Uh, Diane? Sure. So this is a tricky one because I'm not sure what the health insurance Uh, Carolyn has is exactly. So I think first, I think it's important that you check out from uh, the human resources people at um, your health insurance or at, at, you know, whoever you call about your health insurance, what they suggest, because I think Medicare Part B is going to wrap around it. And then there's a question about how it's going to wrap and whether it's going to offer you the protection you want. But as for when you would get Medicare, it's automatic only when you sign up for Social Security ahead of when you're eligible for Medicare. So if you haven't signed up yet for Social Security or you're not signing up for it, um, you're going to have to contact Social Security about getting Medicare. Uh, Since you're not actively working, you will need to sign up for Medicare when you turn 65 to avoid late enrollment penalties unless you are married and have coverage 
from your spouse's job um, and your spouse is actively working. So this is a long-winded way of saying this is a little bit trickier than your normal situation. Medicare can be quite costly. The Medicare Part B premium is over $170 a month now. So you want to make sure that that Medicare Part B is providing you valuable coverage if you are able to keep your federal civil service coverage. And um, and that coverage is coverage that can take a Medicare wrap. So those are questions that you're going to need to resolve. There's also actually a um, state health insurance assistance program in every state. And you should feel free to call them for free guidance on how to navigate this um, this question. Thanks. And our next question is from Valenda. Uh, they ask about, um, how about doing something about insulin prices? They are ridiculous. I just paid $105 for my insulin. I make $862 a month, which means I won't be able to eat right this month. So uh, Diane, do you want to speak a little bit about the bills that are happening in uh, Congress and what other options there might be? Sure, I'd love to. So there's a lot going on in Congress around insulin because it is just ridiculously highly priced. And that's because Congress has still not chosen to regulate insulin prices. Um, there's a move right now to have legislation that would cap insulin prices for lots of folks at 35 bucks a month. Already, if you have Medicare um, it and you are part of a Medicare demonstration project and there are projects in every state now, um, your, your insulin can be capped at $35 a month, but not anyone else. And so the move is to do that for everyone else. The problem is that if that is not done in tandem with regulating the price of insulin, it's going to drive up costs for everyone and more so than you might imagine, because it will give the manufacturers of insulin free reign to keep hiking up prices and have nobody feel that price increase because their out-of-pocket costs are $35, but it is affecting the overall cost of healthcare. So there's a question about, obviously we want everybody to be able to afford their insulin and that's critical. And so $35 a month is still high for a lot of folks, but it's still a lot better than what people are paying. Um, at the same time, um, we don't want to make this a big handout to the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, we really need to rein in drug prices for everyone on all drugs. And Alika, um, do you have some thoughts on what they can do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I, I just want to validate this is a really, really common situation. You know, ACA, speaking for the ACA marketplace plans, insulin is covered, but often at a very high copay or um, the type of insulin you need might not be covered at all or might be covered at a uh, at higher tier prescription drug coverage. So you'll, you can often have to pay a lot of money for that. Um, again, we really are going to need a policy solution to, to tackle this. But in terms of what you can do right now, um, it is always worth checking um, with the manufacturer of the brand of insulin you need to see if they have a manufacturer assistance program. Again, as Diane, I'm sure can share, there's lots around sort of incentives that creates and, and all of this. But um, often those programs can help many people get their insulin for a more affordable copay. Again, I think Lily, for example, has a program that will um, let you pay again around about $35 a month. 
So that's the the first thing to check if if your plan has a copay you cannot. Thanks. And also, uh, some states have done some uh, regulation, and you absolutely should be contacting your state legislators and your senators and congressperson, and make sure that they know that this is a problem. This is a problem affecting their constituent, who is you, and you want them to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And they may be listening a little harder this year because it is an election year. So make sure you make those calls and send those emails so that they know that this is something they need to take action on. And now uh, it's my treat to introduce our special guest for today's show, John McNamara from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, who is going to be talking about health care and medical debt. So uh, let's start, John, by what is the CFPB? Um, sure, Lauren. Th- thanks for having me. So the CFPB is, I'm pretty sure it's, it's consumers' newest regulator, newest federal regulator. We were formed in 2011 um, and actually put in place by the Dodd-Frank uh, Wall Street Reform and Consumer Financial Protection Act that, that arose out of the Great Recession. But our job is to protect consumers. And I don't want to bury the lead for the audience, but uh, encourage everybody to write this website down or think about this website. It's consumerfinance.gov because there there's just incredible resources for consumers relative to medical debt, but also relative to all debts and their consumer financial lives. But we were created to provide a single point of accountability for enforcing consumer financial laws and protecting consumers in the financial marketplace. Um, we do that by writing rules. We supervise um, large players, and we enforce the law when we run into bad actors or find bad actors. And we're always on patrol for those folks, uh, including uh, whistleblower lines. Uh, we want to hear if consumers are being harmed. And then we also have a very extensive complaint website where if a consumer feels like they've been done wrong, they should go to that website. It's consumerfinance.gov forward slash complaint forward slash and if we don't have the authority to do something about it, we make a point of forwarding those to the regulators that do. Um, and that's that's in a nutshell what we do. But we are, we're here. We're here for, for your audience. Uh, and we're here for anyone that feels like they've been done wrong in their financial lives. And with respect to health care, they should think of us um, when they get a call from a, a, a debt collector or a letter from a debt collector, because we do have authority over what's called the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act that governs what debt collectors can and can't do. And it also sets out rights that your viewers have relative to their debts. The other thing at time that they should think about us uh, is if they see or find out about a black mark put on their credit report by, by anyone for that matter, but specifically in this context by a healthcare provider, because we also have authority for what's called the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which is designed to ensure that that information is accurate and timely. Uh, and, and again, we do want to hear if there's issues there. Thanks. And can you explain what the No Surprises Act uh, is, which is something that Congress passed recently to uh, end surprise medical bills and what it means for consumers? Yeah, absolutely. So the No Surprises Act was designed to protect consumers from surprise medical bills. It's one of the, maybe a subset of laws where the, the name of the law actually is what it, it, it does, what it says. But big bills, because uh, you don't know the provider was out of network, it's designed to get at those. You get a surprise billing. You didn't know that, that you were taken care of by someone 
outside the network, and then you're hit with a very, very big bill. That often happens for emergency services uh, or from out-of-network providers. Uh, another example where it might happen is because of a lack of authorization. So uh, other areas to worry about for consumers or be, be cognizant of are, are both emergency and non-emergency services. Um, and then another, I guess, broad category where the surprise billing can take place are out-of-network charges and balance billing for supplemental care like radiology, anesthesiology, um, or, uh, and this is particularly concerning, out-of-network providers that actually work in a network facility. So unless the patient really dug in, they might have no awareness in advance that those would uh, could result in a very, very large out-of-network bill. Um, this No Surprises Act requires some providers to disclose state and federal protections against balanced billing, and it sets up a complaint process with respect to balanced bill, bill, billing and out-of-network cost sharing. As mm -hmm. far uh, as can you explain what balanced billing is? Sure. Balanced billing is where the difference between what the hospital charges and what the insurance company will pay is passed on to the patient. Um, and again, sometimes that can be a, a very, very considerable amount of money. Um, where the No Surprises Act comes in with us, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, is specifically around debt collectors. Uh, and we issued a bulletin reminding debt collectors that they could be breaking the law. That law is the Fair mm -hmm. Debt Collection Practices Act. Uh, if they're trying to collect debts that are in violation of the No Surprises Act, mm -hmm. again, they may be passed a bill by a healthcare provider that is uh, unlawful under the No Surprises Act, which would mean the collector is trying to collect a very, very large bill it has no right to collect. And again, in those cases, they may be breaking the law, and that is under our, our jurisdiction. So we're, we're absolutely committed to investigating debt collector and credit reporting problems related to No Surprises. And again, relative to credit reporting, the No Surprises Act may say that that $10,000 bill isn't yours. You're not liable for that. But if the debt collector furnishes that as a black mark on your credit report, the CFPB has a concern about it. Mm -hmm. And does this serve as an incentive for debt collectors uh, to help people in understanding the uh, No Surprises Act and their coverage? You know, they're not obligated to, but but I think it does. And I think what, what may help patients is... The, the, just the fact that debt collectors are going to be much more cognizant over the accuracy of the accounts placed with them by healthcare providers, because they may be on the hook too, just as well as the healthcare provider. And speaking of those credit reporting agencies, uh, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion recently announced they're going to be removing up to 70% of medical debt from people's credit reports. Uh, so can you tell us more about that and what uh, issues still remain? Sure. As, as a matter of fact, we so the team that I manage uh, wrote a report that we released in, gosh, I want to say it was early March. And it, it was really about the, the ecosystem of harm around medical debt and just the various ways that the medical debt burden might uh, hurt consumers, mental health, physical health, uh, financial health in those those areas. But we also talked quite a bit about these debt collection trade lines. So I find it really interesting, and a lot of folks don't know this, but if you don't pay your car loan or you pay it, your car loan, your, your, whoever holds your car loan is likely to provide good information or bad information. In the medical debt space, 
they only furnish bad information. They typically do not furnish if you're on time. And not only is the provider not furnishing this, I think our research from 2015, 2014 indicated 99.6% of all these debt collection black marks on your credit report are furnished not by the provider, but actually by a third party that the healthcare provider is hired. Those are typically debt collectors. Um, we have found that that information is often highly inaccurate uh, and problematic. And when we issued this report, um, it got uh, quite a bit of press and, and folks talked about it. And it, it really brought uh, some policy considerations, I think, into the dialogue. So we were cautiously, I would say, I was really happy. Uh, but as a Bureau, we were cautiously optimistic when Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax, those are the three national credit reporting agencies that control this consumer reporting system, they announced they were going to back way off on medical debts uh, furnished. So what they said was, beginning in July of this year, paid collection bills will no longer be included on your credit report. They, they won't be seen, won't be visible. Unpaid bills will only be reported as unpaid after at least 12 months. So typically that was six months, a six month delay in furnishing. They moved that to 12 months. Now, I think that's important because that gives the, the insurance companies, um, both private and public or any other funds, including charity care, time to, to work on that debt and make sure all of that is accurately applied and fully applied, minimizing that balance. And the third thing that they, they said they're going to do is starting in July of 2023, they'll not include furnished medical bills for amounts less than 500. Our study indicated that I think over 62% of these um, uh, black marks were for balances under $500. Why is that important? Uh, well, it's critically important because anyone that gets a credit report on you um, and that's it's not just maybe maybe someone trying to, to sell you a car or a mortgage, but it could be a landlord or a prospective employer. They would see those black marks. And that's problematic because it is fairly known that these this information is not necessarily that predictive. Uh, it's not as nearly as important as other bits of information uh, for a prospective landlord, employer or uh, lender to determine if you're a good risk or not. Now, the work's not done because while the national credit reporting agencies, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion said that 70% of these uh, black marks would be removed, that still leaves another 30%. And so we're still questioning that. And uh, our, our uh, director, Director Rohit Chopra, is instructed us to continue investigating this area to see if medical debt period should even be involved on your credit report um, mm -hmm. that is you know, again, could be used by a prospective employer or a landlord or someone that's trying to lend you money. So that's fairly big news there. And I think it's, I hope I'm cautiously optimistic that it's good news for consumers who are struggling with medical debt burden. Mm -hmm. And so why do these uh, debt collectors report this information? Are they required to? Do they benefit in some way? Yeah, no, it's a good question. It's a great question. No, they're not required. This is a voluntary system. Many collectors don't furnish at all. Uh, many providers don't require their debt collectors to furnish these black marks, yet some providers do require the debt collector to furnish these black marks. And it's, um, it's an interesting dynamic, and I, I hope more and more 
patients and advocates in the space question the providers about the practice. Okay, so you're saying some sometimes it's the hospitals or the medical providers are making the debt collectors report this to somebody's personal uh, Right, sometimes report. it may be voluntary on the debt collector's part. Sometimes it may be required. Uh, and some providers may leave it up to the debt collector whether they furnish or not. And since people with lower incomes are much more likely to move frequently and change addresses, uh, do debt collectors have any sort of obligation or responsibility to track you down before they can put black marks on your credit report? Uh, another, another great question. So this was such an area of concern that we uh, I, I came, I joined the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to work on the debt collection rule or Regulation F. We actually put a stipulation in there that collectors could not furnish a black mark until they'd made some effort to communicate um, with the person to tell them they were doing that. Now, that said, um, there are many, many cases where a collector will put that black mark on somebody's credit report and they won't find out about it until they try to to uh, buy a car or get a credit card or a mortgage. And we had deep concerns that consumers that were trying to get a mortgage or get a job or get an apartment might pay a bill that they otherwise would dispute as inaccurate or not even their bill just to be able to get uh, access to that credit, that job, that apartment. So the Bureau considers this sort of behavior as coercive furnishing, where they're furnishing not so much to make the credit underwriting system more predictive and better, but they're just trying to basically force consumers to pay debts that they might otherwise dispute. Absolutely. And uh, that's also an important reminder, uh, if you're watching this, is that you can get a free credit report every year. Uh, and so I, I just do mine on my birthday because that's my reminder to myself to if get I can it. correct you, this is oh. kind, of, kind of a good thing, too, is starting with the, the COVID pandemic, uh, it's now uh, the, the nation, nationwide credit reporting agencies announced that they would provide those weekly and they've extend, they extended that in 2021 and they've extended it through um, the end of 2022. I mean, and, and I think uh, I would encourage everyone to periodically get a copy of that free credit report and take a look and be, you know, be very assertive. If you see things that don't belong on there or things that you think are inaccurate, especially debt collection trade line. Absolutely. And so if somebody is watching this and they already have uh, medical debt, uh, maybe they're already receiving collection letters or they're expecting to, uh, what, what's your advice uh, for somebody in this situation? So first of all, I think if you're struggling with medical debt or any debt for that matter, and you're facing calls from debt collectors, um, it can be it can feel like a very lonely experience. You're not alone. I mean, our studies showed that 43 million Americans had these black marks on their credit reports. So you're you may be one of 43 million consumers who are struggling with this. Um, first of all, I would take a look at the, whatever it is that you've got, whether you noticed a credit report or you got a letter or a phone call. Consider going to consumerfinance.gov. It apps, there's, a, there's a wealth of information, including what to do if a debt collector calls. We've got information under a section called Ask CFPB to help consumers uh, navigate through some of the maze uh, that can be this, this uh, uh, health care provider billing system. Um, so those are two affirmative steps I would take. Um, and then it can be helpful in some situations, assuming the collector is respectful, to talk to them because they may try to 
for one thing, they can be a great source of getting additional information. And consumers should know they have the, a right under the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act to dispute a bill, and the collector has to stop collecting until they've answered that dispute. Those are all steps that, that uh, consumers can take. Thanks. And uh, what should a consumer do if they think the medical debt a collector is uh, trying to collect uh, isn't owed or that they already paid? Uh, do they have any recourse? Yeah, they should absolutely dispute it. Um, send a letter to the collector uh, or if the collector is communicating uh, online, send them some, some form of communication where they have proof. Uh, that they send. They don't. I don't think they need to go as far as like return receipt uh, required, that sort of thing. But send a written document disputing it. Tell the collector you dispute it. And then I would also encourage them to go to our website and, and file a complaint uh, to get us involved and make us aware. Absolutely. And again, as, as you mentioned earlier, check your free annual credit report to make sure that they didn't put a black mark on your on your credit report. Some of these. Sometimes these black marks can be for as little as 40 or $50, even a copay. Uh, but oftentimes, as I said in our report, 62% of these were under $500 um, in terms of, of how big healthcare bills can be, relatively small. But, but again, why are they there if they're not predicted? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for answering uh, so many questions today. And everybody that's watching, please go to consumerfinance.gov and check out all the resources they have available, as well as getting your free annual credit report. Uh, thank you, everybody, for uh, asking your health care and health insurance questions. Keep texting and uh, emailing in your questions. We'll answer them in future shows. And thank you for watching Care Talk.